When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and today's episode is a little bit different. I have some kind of cold or something that's completely fried my voice and it's knocked me on my ass, so this episode is going to be a little bit shorter, but it's on a subject that is very close to my heart and still very much relevant to the current news cycle, sadly. Today we're going to be talking about the transgender priests of Inanna in Mesopotamia and Sibylle in Rome and beyond. I'm going to walk you through it, but my aim with this episode is to show you that trans and non-binary identities aren't new. In fact, they are known to have existed as far back as the first recorded civilization, some 3,000 years before the start of Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that historical precedent is needed to make these identities valid. They are valid for countless reasons, better explained by people far more qualified than I am, and I honestly resent that it's even a discussion at this point. If you've been following the blog for any length of time, it shouldn't surprise you to hear that we here at Dirty Sexy History are serious LGBTQ allies, and that very much includes that T. Talking about history might not be the strongest weapon against transphobia, but it's what we've got, and it's yours. So let's get started. For those of you who are new to ancient history, Mesopotamia was home to the first recorded civilization. Located between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, where modern-day Iraq is now, the area was populated by the Sumerians and Akkadians from the earliest days of recorded history, around 3100 BCE. Mesopotamia was polytheistic, and one of the many gods worshipped was Inanna, also known as the Queen of Heaven. Inanna was the goddess of love, beauty, sex, violence, and justice. Although she was the goddess of sex, it's interesting to note that she was not a goddess of procreation, or indeed a mother herself. She was usually portrayed as promiscuous, but this wasn't a negative thing. As far as Inanna was concerned, sex was a sacred right to be enjoyed as an expression of love and not exclusively for the purpose of procreation. Sex wasn't something shameful yet. An all-powerful goddess with a devoted cult, she is often portrayed with lions. Interestingly enough, the rainbow was actually also one of her symbols. Hmm. Now, surviving artifacts from later periods, when she evolved into or was combined with Ishtar, they even show her riding a chariot being pulled by those lions. There is a beautiful piece in the Met in New York City, and uh, I will also be sharing a photo of that on our Instagram. It's really something. Now, if love, beauty, war, and justice aren't enough for one goddess to handle, Inanna also had another very important ability. She could change men into women, and women into men. That's not just awkward phrasing there. That's a quote. Around 2280 BCE, Enhudwana, 
who lived from 2285 to 2250. She was an Akkadian high priestess of the moon in the Sumerian city of Ur, and she wrote a number of poems and hymns for Inanna, including The Great-Hearted Mistress, The Exaltation of Inanna, and Goddess of the Fearsome Power. She describes some of this power here. Without your consent, no destiny is determined. The most ingenious solution finds no favor. To run fast, to slip away, to calm, to pacify are yours, Inanna. To dart aimlessly, to go too fast, to fall, to get up, to sustain a comrade are yours, Inanna. To open high road and by road, safe lodging on the way, helping the worn out along are yours, Inanna. To make footpath and trail go in the right direction, to make the going good are yours, Inanna. To destroy, to create, to tear out, to establish are yours, Inanna. To turn a man into a woman and a woman into a man are yours, Inanna. This isn't a metaphor, and the sense isn't the only source that mentions this. In the Epic of Era, a Babylonian poem, there are references to Kurgara and Asinu, classes of servants of the goddess, whose, quote, maleness Ishtar turned to female for the awe of the people. The British Museum has a fragment of a 5,000-year-old statue with a still clear inscription that translates to Silamabzuda, hermaphrodite of Inanna. But these are only references to the goddess's ability to transform gender. The most compelling evidence for trans and non-binary identities among her worshippers is the existence of her priests, known as the Gala. The Gala were a class of priests sacred to Inanna. It was said they were initially created by the god Enki to sing heart-soothing laments for the goddess, and they certainly did that. To begin with, one of their primary roles was to sing hymns and laments to the goddess in Emesal, a Sumerian dialect spoken primarily by women that was used to render the speech of female gods. They presided over religious rites, healed the sick, predicted the future, made music, raised money for the poor, and dissolved evil during lunar eclipses. That sounds useful, huh? Akkadian omen texts said that having sex with them was lucky. They were well-known and respected members of their communities, and many of them were what we would think of now as transgender. While it can be problematic to apply modern terminology to 5,000-year-old gender identities, I'll tell you what we know of them. Whether called in a dream, given a vision of the goddess, or driven by devotion, people who'd been born male entered into the service of the goddess and became female for all intents and purposes, taking on feminine pronouns and dressing and living as women. While various sources argue that ritual castration was involved, there isn't actually a lot of evidence to support that this early, and in any case, surgery is still not necessary to validate gender identity today. As they saw it, Inanna had made them women, and though they didn't have the same verbiage for it, their societies accepted that identity. After all, this change was a gift of the goddess. Swapping genders and pronouns wasn't a comment on their sexuality, as it could be in later years. I shouldn't have to tell you that gender identity and sexual orientation are two different things. Gender identity is who you are, and sexual orientation is who you love. We can't make blanket assumptions on the sexual orientation of the Gala, but we do know that they had relationships as diverse as people do today. Many served as sacred sex workers within Inanna's temples, but others did not. 
Some were married to men or women and had families, often adopting children together. Queer families certainly existed, and homosexuality was not a crime. It wasn't shameful or a hot-button issue. It was a normal aspect of everyday life, not even mentioned in the Code of Hammurabi, which provided the basis for law in the region for more than a thousand years. Looking at the Gala in isolation, you might think that their existence was an anomaly of the ancient world. Those cults got up to some strange things that could hardly be common. Except it was. Inanna was a very popular goddess, and her worship spread and evolved throughout the ancient world. While her name changed to Ishtar, Rhea, Sibylle, Bahuchara Mata, and Astarte, one thing remained the same. Her priests. Sibylle was a later goddess with major parallels to Inanna, who came from Phrygia, or modern-day Turkey. Evidence suggests that she had been worshipped throughout the Mediterranean since about the 8th century BCE, throughout Turkey, Italy, and even as far as Marseille. Though referred to as a goddess and depicted as a woman, she herself was said to have been born intersex. Not knowing what to do with this, the other gods were said to have removed her male parts and turned them into an almond tree, and Sibylle then became female, her priests continuing to practice ritual castration in her honor. In 204 BCE, the Roman Senate brought Sibylle's religion to Rome. At the time, they were under threat from Hannibal, the one of the elephants, not Anthony Hopkins, and an oracle told them that embracing Sibylle would help with that. They obtained a statue of the goddess and installed her in a temple on the Palatine Hill. At this point, genderqueer priests had served Sibylle, Inanna, and other interpretations of the goddess for nearly 3,000 years. But Rome wasn't exactly prepared. <laughs> the installation of the goddess in her new home on the Palatine was accompanied by a procession few would forget. As historian F. Legge described it, The procession was headed by priestesses playing flutes and pipes, clashing castanets and cymbals and beating tambourines. Then came the bearers of the sacred emblems, the mystic chest, the pine cones, and the drum, together with other assistants brandishing snakes. Then the statue of the goddess, represented as a seated matron of majestic beauty, holding in her right hand a scepter, and on her head a turreted crown, in which was set the famous aerolite or black stone, which in earlier days had itself been worshipped as divine. The car bearing it was escorted by the corabantes, or male attendants of the goddess, armed with sword and buckler which they rhythmically clashed together with a ritual significance. Then followed, the strangest sight of all to Roman eyes, the eunuch priests of the East, dressed as women with long perfumed hair, painted faces, and eyes darkened with coal. Sounds fierce. So did it help with Hannibal? Actually, yeah, and that year, Rome also had its best harvest in a decade. You're welcome, by the way. So the Galli were now part of an official Roman religion. They were a common sight in the ancient world and an important part of society, but Rome still wasn't quite sure what to do with them. Concerned with inheritance and property law, Roman citizens were prohibited from becoming Galli because of the ban on castration. Whether or not they actually practiced this is debatable, but as far as Rome was concerned, anyone who could not procreate for any reason, including disinterest, infertility, homosexuality, celibacy, or impotence, was neither truly male nor female. Castrated or not, the Galli's non-binary status meant that they could not inherit property. To the Romans, gender not only depended more on one's ability to procreate than anything else, 
but it was subject to change. Greek and Roman medical texts from the time describe gender not as fixed, but as fluid depending on humors like heat and moisture in the body. According to them, these factors could determine an infant's sex during pregnancy, and they could also change one's gender after birth. While the terminology was not there in the same way that it is today, all of this points to the existence and tacit acceptance of a third gender in ancient Rome, even though they did not have the same citizenship or property rights as their cisgender and procreating neighbors. In spite of this, some Romans gave up their citizenship to become Galli. Others had been slaves or had come from other parts of Asia. While it's unclear how many Galli were castrated or at what point in their service this happened, there is more documentation to support this happening at this point. Pliny does not go into detail, but describes the process as relatively safe, something that happened within the limits of injury to avoid dangerous results. This was said to take place on Dies Sanguinis, or the Day of Blood, on March 24th. The Day of Blood was immediately followed by the Day of Joy, a time of sacred celebration. Still, castration alone does not change gender. Even then, Romans struggled with how to define them, but several authors referred to the Galli as a medium genus or tertium sexus, which basically means a third gender. Castrated or not, the Galli throughout the Roman Empire dressed, worshipped, and lived as women. They were noted for their saffron gowns, long hair, heavy makeup, and extravagant jewelry. They existed in every part of the Greco-Roman world at every level of society, and they were mentioned by Ovid, Seneca, Perseus, Martial, and Statius as a common sight in the first century. Apuleius even described them in The Golden Ass. Quote, the following day they went out, wearing various colored undergarments with turbans and saffron robes and linen garments thrown over them, and every one hideously made up, their faces crazy with muddy paints and their eyes artfully lined. If nothing else, the Galli knew how to make an entrance. One of the ways in which they practiced healing was through corabantic rites, a sort of music therapy. These rites were intended to serve the public rather than the goddess herself. According to Plato, the rites were meant to relieve stress and restore peace of mind by inducing a temporary therapeutic madness, less like ayahuasca and more like going to a really good, really loud concert. The Galli would parade through town playing flutes, cymbals, and drums to bring about a kind of transcendental, joyful mania in the crowd. Others told fortunes, along with service to the goddess, castration was believed to give one the ability to see the future, or they begged and danced for money on behalf of the poor. They were hard to miss, wonders in their own time. Diodorus calls them terata, marvels, monsters, prodigies, signs. As historian Will Roscoe so beautifully put it, they were the sacred breaking through to the level of the mundane. Early Christians weren't as fond of the Galais. They preached spiritual androgyny, but physical androgyny was complicated. Although trans and non-binary identities had existed throughout the ancient world for more than 3,000 years at this point, they weren't actually mentioned in the Bible. At this point, they may have been such a common part of society that they would have been more or less taken for granted. Still, early Christian apologists described the Galli in less flattering but suspiciously familiar-sounding terms. Firmicus Maternus said, quote, they wear effeminately nursed hair and dress in soft clothes. They can barely hold their heads up on their limp necks. 
Then, having made themselves alien to masculinity, swept up by playing flutes, they call their goddess to fill them with an unholy spirit so as to seemingly predict the future to idle men. What sort of monstrous and unnatural thing is this? St. Augustine, he took a little bit further. He said, Even till yesterday, with dripping hair and painted faces, with flowing limbs and feminine walk, they passed through the streets and alleys of Carthage, exacting from merchants that by which they might shamefully live. It sounds a bit shady the way he puts it, but they're just out shopping. These ladies are out buying groceries, looking fabulous with their long hair and perfect eyebrows, and Augustine's throwing shade like some catty little bitch. Can't please everybody, right? But it wasn't only toxic masculinity and transphobia that fueled this distaste. The cult of Sibylle was hugely influential throughout the ancient world, and it was actually one of Christianity's biggest rivals. In some places, Christians and followers of Sibylle had street fights when their religious festivals overlapped in the spring, and the Galli came to represent to some what they didn't like about pagan culture. Nevertheless, Sibylle continued to be worshipped until the fall of Rome, with the religion's last known rites being celebrated in 394 CE. Unofficially, however, people continued to worship in private to the point that the church ultimately passed canon laws to prevent people from castrating themselves at home. However, that wasn't the end of gender nonconformity in Italy. In Naples, the femminelli are considered a third gender, probably most closely resembling trans women today. With roots in the ancient world, they continued to be an important part of their society over the years, occasionally appearing in art and literature. In 1740, artist Giuseppe Bonito painted The Feminiello, a comic portrait of one of these people. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but we'll post it on our Instagram anyway. We also have a brilliant vintage photo of a 19th century Feminiello in an absolutely killer dress, which we will, of course, post as well. To this day, the Feminiello are considered good luck. They're still celebrating as well, like the Day of Blood and the Day of Joy at the end of March in ancient times, today's Feminielli have an annual parade on Easter Monday called the Matrimonio dei Feminielli, where they travel through the streets of Naples in wedding dresses and horse-drawn carriages. Many of them still follow the Black Madonna or Madonna of Monte Vergine, who has been helping LGBTQ people since the Middle Ages. In this way, Sibylle has transformed once again and may live on in plain sight, within the very church that once threatened her followers and, in many places, still does. Trans and non-binary gender identities have existed in many cultures since antiquity. We'll be going into this more in the future when we can devote the time and research to it that this deserves. This doesn't cover everything, and it's not supposed to, but what I'm trying to do today is to show you that not only are trans identities older than 1960, but they predate Christianity by some 3,000 years. So the next time that someone tells you they want to return to traditional values, you ask them for me, how far back do you want to go? This episode of Dirty Sexy History was brought to you by Basic Human Decency, Cough Drops, and our lovely patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, and Jessica Miller. Thank you all so very much for your support. If you would like to support our show, 
rate, review, and subscribe, and check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. We will have some fun new extras coming up on Patreon within the next month, including a probably ill-advised secret travel podcast where I talk about history from increasingly inappropriate places. I know, I'm excited too. If you have any suggestions for places I should go, give us a shout. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dirty Sexy History. All photos from today's post can be found on our Instagram, and more information about these subjects can be found on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. This episode of Dirty Sexy History was written, researched, recorded, and produced by me, Jessica Kale. My sources today include Eric Berkowitz, Sex and Punishment, 4,000 Years of Judging Desire. Maria Grazia Lancelotti, Addis, Between Myth and History, King, Priest, and God, Volume 149 of Religions in the Greco-Roman World. Nico Lang, This 18th century Italian painting proves gender nonconformity is far from a modern invention. Slate. F. Legge, The Most Ancient Goddess, Sibylle. The Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society of Great Britain and Ireland, October 1917. Cheryl Morgan, Evidence for Trans Lives in Sumer, Notches. Will Roscoe, Priests of the Goddess, Gender Transgression in Ancient Religion, History of Religions 35, Number 3, 1996. Happy Pride.